This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Monday was the revised deadline for workers in Ontario's long-term care homes to have received at least one shot of COVID vaccine or they wouldn't be allowed to go to work. That was already an extension since Monday originally was supposed to be the day nursing home staff across the province were fully vaccinated. They now have until December 13th to get their two shots. That's where Libby began the conversation with the Zoomer squad on Monday. Peter Mugridge is senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder is chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP. Why wouldn't they have just kept the, the de- deadline if it's only 5% or less? Surely that's not uh, worth the, the risk of infecting our loved ones who are in the facilities where they uh, where they work. Of course, they should have moved sooner. They should have uh, put this into place months ago, so we'd already be past this point by this time. But uh, the delay doesn't seem reasonable, doesn't seem safe, and it's going to cause a lot of worry among a lot of families. Part of their explanation is that there are certain communities where the take-up is low. And I was surprised when I first heard that the communities with the low take-up are, are homes that cater to people who are Polish or Ukrainian. And the explanation that I heard is that these are all people who uh, came from their areas when it was under the Soviet Union, and they regard it as a government-imposed thing, and they don't trust it. David, what do you think of that? We have two problems here. As usual, we don't have complete information from the government. We have these big sweeping statistics, 95% are vaccinated, 5% are not. But if I drill down deeper, what has been the infection rate in these homes? Uh, what has been the mortality rate? Is it noticeably higher or lower? Are the workers who are refusing to be vaccinated, agreeing to get tested every day in lieu of the vaccine. Uh, How many people are coming into these homes that are neither vaccinated nor tested? Good luck finding all that out. So you're left with the sensibility of the policy of making everybody get vaccinated, which I completely agree with Bill. But the explanation for why they're not doing it, they're not providing enough data uh, to support their their alternative strategy, frankly. Peter, I mean, what do you make of this? Do you see this as kind of a test? I mean, the Ford government generally is seen by a lot of people as being soft on anti-vaxxers. So do you see this as a kind of test? Well, it, it certainly looks like, uh, you know, they're, they're pushing the ball downfield a bit, you know, uh, moving the date. Um, I, I guess we'll know more on, on December 13th whether they're ready to actually enforce that and send workers home. But I, I you know, the, these homes are so desperate for workers. I, I find that really hard to believe that they're going to send thousands of people 
home for the day. They they just can't. There's no there's no slack in this system. They they there's no workers to fill in. To me, this this is a test. And if they don't do what they say they're right. going to do, why why would anyone comply? Right. And and they really haven't shown signs of it earlier with with refusing to put a mandate in hospitals. So maybe they're just not. <laughs> you know, they're just not going to be tough on the, on the, the remaining few thousand who don't have vaccines. They're waffling on both the the policy and the explanation for the policy. And and uh, if they had a coherent message here about, you know, there's only X hundred people that are unvaccinated and they can't come in unless they get tested every 48 hours, that would be one thing. Then you could say, okay, they're they're substituting a different way of making sure. Because at the end of the day, all you want is that the person that's in the room taking care of the resident does not have COVID. That's what you want. The absence of COVID is the end result here. So if you know they don't have COVID because they've been tested and they're willing to be tested every 48 hours, then that would seem to be an arguable, I'm not saying it, but arguable substitute for um, getting them vaccinated because if they failed the test, they wouldn't be allowed in. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. They're tired of being called heroes. Nurses in this province want a more concrete appreciation of the incredibly tough conditions they've been working under since the pandemic began. That's why this past Sunday, they protested Bill 124, which caps their pay hikes and that of other public sector workers at 1% annually. Libby was joined to talk about the crisis in nursing by Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Nancy Halupa, an emergency registered nurse in the GTA and founder of Nurse with Sign 416. It was kind of my last-ditch effort to try to change the way things are going in the healthcare system. It uh, basically is a bunch of nurses, public sector workers, that are holding up signs every day or whenever they like to tell people of the public what is actually going on in the healthcare system, Um, specifically nursing. We're critically short-staffed. It's dangerous, and I really didn't think that the public fully understood how dangerous healthcare has become. So it was kind of my way of informing the public. Okay. Doris, do you think uh, that it's fair to lump nurses in with other public sector workers? Uh, Most of them, uh, you know, were not on the front lines. They were comfortably working from home, collecting their full salaries. Not that there's anything wrong with that if they were working, but it was a a completely different uh, kettle of fish, to use a bad cliche. I mean, you know, while nurses were on the front lines doing a dangerous job under really tough circumstances for a very long period of time, that continues now. Well, that's a fantastic question that you are posing and one that the our premier should respond to Libby because, as you know, police, firefighters, and doctors are not included into that bill. So why would the premier uh, target a female 
a majority female uh, workforce that is essential. We are essential services, as you know, and we are deemed as essential services to this province. Uh, why would he do that? Well, I keep asking him the same. Uh, what does so he say? He, you ask him. I know well, you are. Well, the premier, I just again uh, sent a message to the premier. Uh, the, the tragedy here, Livy, is that the lack of action on the premier on the issue of mandatory vaccination, as you and I spoke before, is damaging patients. On this case, in the issue of Bill uh, 124, is driving nurses away from Ontario by by the by by the hundreds, if not thousands. I just finished a meeting with a group of 20 nurses, um, and this week we are meeting all week, my president and I, with different groups. Uh, they are all saying the same. If this doesn't change, they're out of here. Not necessarily out of the profession, out of Ontario. And then already we have a crisis, Libby. They are calling nurses, RNs. The issue here is mainly RNs, but it's all nurses, really. And all, they, they, they are calling them in the middle of the day, come for two hours, come for four hours, in, op, in emergency rooms, in ICUs, come for whatever time you can. And meanwhile, the premier is sitting on this bill that, um, it, it's just, it's just, Horrendous, horrendous. Nancy Halupa, what would you like to leave us with? I, I also want to specify to you, I'm an, emer- I'm an emergency room nurse in a hospital. We need to look at home care as well. Yeah. The, it's, the entire healthcare system is broken. It's not just breaking, it's already broken. If nothing, if something does not get done soon, I, I am terrified for my family, for my parents that are in their 80s now, for my for myself even, who's going to take care of me when I'm that age? Who's going to take care? And people can't wait until they're lying in that hospital bed to think, oh, maybe the, maybe healthcare is broken. You need to think about it before you get there because once you're there, there's not going to be anybody to help you. Living without nurses, there is no healthcare. We all know it. And the premier needs to know it, needs to look at the mirror and say, I will leave my stubbornness or ego on the side. We'll park it. That bill is gone. And that sends a message to nurses. Please stay here. We're going to fix together the system. Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Nancy Halupa, an emergency registered nurse in the GTA and founder of Nurse with Sign 416. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, conservative party infighting continues. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week marked more infighting in the federal Conservative Party. It had been a few weeks since we last talked about challenges to Aaron O'Toole's leadership. Early this week, Conservative Senator Denise Batters launched a petition calling for an early leadership review. A day later, she was fired from the Conservative caucus by Aaron O'Toole, a move she reacted to by saying on Twitter she won't be silenced by a person she calls a weak leader who let her go via voicemail. 
prior to O'Toole's move to fire the senator. Libby was joined on Tuesday by Fight Back strategy panelists about the dissension in the Conservative Party. Here are Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Well, you'd think we would have learned something from the uh, from the very public fiasco display of the Green Party leading up to the election and then during the election and then quite frankly since the election uh, where they uh, where they finally forced enemy Paul to resign. Um, look, I, I don't think anything good comes out of any when when political parties air their dirty laundry, so to speak. And and you know all parties have done it. Charles, of course, knows. Uh, full well, you know the the damage this kind of stuff does with uh, with the political morale and, and and party when when these kinds of discussions happen in, in public. And you know I, I I've always maintained um, you know since the election, uh, Libya on on this program a number of times how much I support Aaron O'Toole. And yeah, you know what the campaign got away from us. I think that uh, there was no doubt early on that Aaron O'Toole was doing well and and quite frankly was was looking upon looking like he was going to potentially win the election. And that's a far cry from a year previous when he got elected as leader during the pandemic uh, and, you know, wasn't wasn't really known, didn't get a lot of media or airtime during that time, but but certainly became well known uh, enough in the election that Canadians were giving him the trust and, and of course, slipped up a couple of times. And that's stuff that we need to fix or they need to fix as a party. But more importantly, though, changing leaders at this stage of the game is just is is just irresponsible. Um, We've got a leader. Canadians got to know him and got to like him by and large. We've got They've got to fix what they've got to fix. Uh, and move on. Having a leadership now when there's a minority government is, quite frankly, irresponsible. Charles Souza, is this the inevitable result? I mean, there are two major factions in this party. One is uh, more conservative, socially conservatives, then there are the red Tories. Is this just, uh, you know, the inevitable result of that? Well, it's been plaguing the party for some time, ever since uh, they did the split and the Reform Party came to be and and then they try to reunite, but what they've missed in the reunite of uh, of the right is they took away the progressive nature of the right. They're no longer progressive conservatives, and it's a small portion, a small faction of them that are that are making the noise. Uh, strange enough, in Saskatchewan, who seems to want to be their own nation. So Senator Batters, a non-elected official, by saying they're losing faith in the flip-flops on carbon pricing, on guns, on social issues, on vaccines, those are all things that Canadians care about, the majority of which, and, and for them not to be seen as right enough is, is unfortunate because for them, it's great for the Liberals. I mean, the Liberals were, were vulnerable. O'Toole, uh, as much as I'm a Liberal, I like his notion of trying to appeal to the public and the broader issues that matter to Canadians, and they have to unite. They've got to unite the rural and the urban, the old and the new, and if they can't do that, Their only way to win is to bolster the fortunes of the NDP and split the left. Karen, I mean, are they just shooting themselves in the foot here? Yeah, and and we've spoken about this, Libby, the the difference between running for leader of your party when your audience is conservatives and then running for leader of the country when your audience is the general electorate. And and it's not that's not to suggest that you say one thing one way. And I I mean, that doesn't that doesn't excuse a a perceived flip flop, as it were. But it's certainly, um, you know, the tone of a leadership race is very, very different. And so, you know, and then also the issues that they're raising, 
So what I see playing out is that there is a faction of the party that is not lining up behind where Aaron O'Toole wants to take the party. And so it is a bit of a, a, a fight for the heart and soul of the party. And at some point, he's got to figure out how he can assert his leadership in a very positive and productive way, but also make crystal clear that he is the leader of the party and he has a vision for the party. And this is where he's going to take it. And then there has to be a decision. Is that where the party's willing to go? But this can't continue. Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road. The drama continued later in the week when Aaron O'Toole threatened any other Conservative senators of being removed from the National Caucus if they questioned his leadership. Soon after, Conservative senators decided to keep Denise Batters in their caucus in a sense, defying Aaron O'Toole's wishes. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How many of us are still wiping down every surface we use? Maybe getting a bit lax, though, on masking. Now that it is generally accepted that the virus is airborne, the thinking on masks has changed. When the mandates first came out, we were told wearing a mask would protect others. Now the word is wearing a mask allows us to protect ourselves. Libby was joined to discuss by epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Barry Pakes, assistant professor at U of T's Dalla School of Public Health. As they were going to air on Tuesday, news broke that symptomatic testing for COVID-19 would soon be conducted in participating pharmacies. Pharmacies have... Um moved in, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic. There's been this sort of a gradual inclusion of pharmacies in a variety of pieces, mostly the testing, but also the vaccination of, of you know, pandemic response. Um, I certainly um, hear people who are uncomfortable with symptomatic people coming into pharmacies. I, in fact, just got my booster dose uh, at a pharmacy, and I was thinking of that myself because I had sort of got wind that this might be coming. And, and I think that should give people pause, potentially. On the other hand, though, you know, people who had, in, 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 as someone working in public health in the response, when we had potentially sent people to get tested and they would go to, you know, a pharmacy and, and they would eventually say that, yes, they had some mild symptom and then the pharmacy wouldn't test them, you know, that's not an appropriate way of, of doing sort of generalized testing in case and contact management. So I think it's reasonable, but I think it should be done with the proper safeguard. Back to the masking thing. So the thought now is, because, you know, you see a lot of people getting the vaccination rate is high, getting pretty lax about masking, but, but there's more evidence that now masking actually, you protect yourself. It's not just other people as we were told when the whole thing started. Um, I think it's always been both to some degree. I think um, Dr. Tan's emphasis on trying on, on protecting yourself now is, is just to re-emphasize that we do need to continue masking. And I think one of the wonderful things in Ontario and the reason why we've weathered this really well, as difficult as it's been over the past two years, is that, you know, people have continued to mask. And, you know, there's certainly exceptions to that. But for the most part, um, what I see, and I don't go out that much anymore, but I certainly have seen that people, for the most part, are masking. And and what we have seen, you know, as part of the pandemic response is that when we do have transmission, including in schools, you know, while it can transmit in an aerosolized manner, 
um, you know, when there has been transmission, it's often, oh, yeah, the kid pulled down the mask and this was another kid who was, you know, sitting right next to them during um, during lunch or something like that. And for the most part, other kids in the class or in other settings, you know, didn't uh, contract COVID. So, you know, as long as people are wearing the masks, which they are indoors in almost all settings, then then I think we're we're going to be fine. We just need to make sure we continue doing that as we, you know, progress towards the end game. The other thing is, like, a lot of people uh, complain that, you you know, we have now huge stadiums that are and, and games that there's not that much masking there. Dr. Sly. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we've spoken in the past, Libby, about this. We've got these, uh, we've now accounted over seven of these COVID C characteristics, all begin with C, and so many of them are covered by something like a stadium where you're getting a large number of people all closely packed together uh, without necessarily masking, but they are all shouting and yelling at the top of their voice, which which wonderfully spreads aerosols around. So, and they were there for a longer period of time and so on and so on. So yes, yes, we, we, we shouldn't let these things relax. Remember, and nothing has been 100%, nothing, whether it's a screening or a a surveillance method or vaccines or hand washing, it's all been less than 100%. So the idea is to build up at least a, a good solid basis. And that's a that's the vaccination, get as many people as possible and, and pat on the back to people in Ontario who've done a very good job in that, uh, better than many area, other areas. But then the more immediate protection protecting ourselves, the immediate one is the mask. It works the moment you put it on until the moment you take it off again or let it slip off, and you're protected for that period. So we can't let either of those things down. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Barry Pakes, assistant professor at U of T's Dalla School of Public Health. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Helen in Toronto phoned about mandatory vaccination for staff in long-term care homes. The problem is that there aren't going to be enough people to service those in senior homes. Why didn't Ontario give some type of incentive? Quebec paid for, if I'm not mistaken, people to become PSWs. The big problem is... We're not going to have people to fill the gap. And that should have been thought of ages ago. Morris in Etobicoke phoned to talk about what he sees as a mistake by Ontario's premier. Mr. Doug Ford is a paper tiger. He's pandering to the extreme right, anti-vaxxers, the religious, etc., etc. And he just doesn't get the point that I don't want to go to an LTC or an aircraft or anywhere else where the person next to me is not vaccinated. Full stop. Jennifer in Hamilton phoned to say she's frustrated with spending decisions made by governments, one in particular by the Trudeau Liberals. 
Oh, I'm just a little annoyed because I think about the $500 that the government so freely handed out to all seniors, all seniors over the age of 75, probably tons of them who did not need that money. Perhaps they need to look at that again to recoup some of their losses. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Rhonda in Kitchener, who phoned with a rebuttal for the union leader who represents TTC workers as the mandatory COVID vaccination policy takes effect. I'm sorry, sir. I, I'm sorry that they, you had to go to the great lengths that you did to get protected in the first place, but it was new and fresh to everyone. But the point is now there's a vaccine. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. They're working for the public. It doesn't matter if they take a pill in the future. As long as they do something to protect themselves, forget the public. It's protecting themselves. But when you're working with the public, this is a must. I'm glad that it, that it, it I'm sorry it had to come to the point where everybody has to be forced. I don't understand that to begin with, because you look on uh, Facebook and everything else, they're putting more personal information out there, and all they're asked is, did you get two shots? And they're taking it as an insult. And that's wrong. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.